Okay, everyone. So uh, we're going to get started um, for some background. We've got uh, T Keegan Tupchong here. He's uh, one of our graduating second year care medicine fellows. Uh, he's going to be starting at University of Texas at Houston next year, splitting his time between the ICU and the emergency department. Um, so we're excited for you, Keegan. The uh, is a little bit of background um, regarding his training. Keegan, um, Canadian originally, and uh, for some reason left Canada. I don't know why. And it's <laughs> they're they're so reasonable. And um, and then came down for Thomas Jefferson for uh, medical school. Uh, went to NYU for emergency medicine, where he did a chief residency year and stayed on as faculty at NYU. Uh, he did uh, got his RDMS, so it's basically his ultrasound uh, certification, and recently got board certified in echocardiography. So congratulations! And uh, today he's going to be talking about um, ICU triage. All right, thanks, Mike. Can you guys hear me? All right, great. So has anybody seen this, uh, this movie? Yeah. So this is uh, something I watched fairly recently. Um, I didn't realize this is a thing. So free soloing is when you climb mountains and don't have a rope or anything. And I thought that this was like a, just a Photoshop thing that was always in like National Geographic. Turns out it's a real thing. So this is a guy, Alex Arnold, who does this. and uh, sets all kinds of records around the, around the globe. And, you know, it kind of made me think, while well, I was watching the movie, it's sort of like, I see triage in some ways because, you know, if you make, make the wrong, take the wrong step, you can have pretty great consequences for people. On, you know, we often don't think of it in those terms, but if you think about when you're making a selection for a patient, you know, it's a big impact on them and their family. So um, we're going to talk about perils and ICU triage. I kind of have a bit of a strange um, uh, situation, I guess, because some day, most days I'm a fellow and some days I'm downstairs, like last night and like tomorrow morning. And, so kind of see both sides of this. And when you're in the ED, you think a lot about um, you're sort of like doing triage in some ways and restratifying patients, trying to get them to the, safe, the right and safe place. And so it's sort of similar to some of the work in the ICU. Um, so my wife and I just finished watching Game of Thrones. Um, and so um, this is kind of how I have felt uh, doing triage this year and part of last year. Sort of, I'm not very good at it. Um, and you know, it's been a pretty humbling experience. And so um, some of you may be familiar with uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is essentially, you know, the x-axis is how good you are at things, and the y-axis is how confident you are. And you, know, you start off pretty bad at everything, and then you get really confident because you've just, you think you've seen it all. Um, and then you get, end up somewhere here, which is certainly where I've been for a while now, I would say, where you start to think about the decisions you're making, and if you're doing the right things for patients, like individual patients, but also broader, like more broadly speaking, a group of patients, um, and so I'd like to share sort of hopefully, hopefully I'm trying to get out of this sort of valley and um, um, kind of share some of the wisdom and things that I've been reading since, uh, since doing this. So uh, this is, for those who don't work in the NICU, this is our uh, very sophisticated, uh, uh, technologically advanced list of patients that we have. So this is uh, a couple months ago when I was doing triage. So we had um, 16 patients on our list and we had one potential bed. So there was a a bed being saved for CAR-T, and you have 16 patients here. So a bunch in the ED that are intubated, shocked, the patient in CCRU needs to be decompressed. Uh, there are patients in the IMC and on the floor. Uh, one was like GI bleeding and whatnot, and there are a bunch of patients at outside hospitals that are all asking for help, and they're saying, we don't have CRT, we can't do plasmapheresis, you know, transplant eval, any of these kinds of things that you would like the patient to be in our institution. Um, and so you have to make a choice as to who you're going to take next, and it's obviously a fluid thing. So... Um, you know, when you look at an individual patient, it's easy to say that patient belongs in an ICU, but I think it's a lot harder when you're in this situation where, you, you know, resources are very constrained. So why we're talking about this, why triage matters is mostly two things, I think. One is resource allocation, and the second is patient outcomes. So this talk's kind of going to be in two parts. The first part's going to be sort of seeing the forest um, from the trees and sort of thinking about the healthcare system we're in and um, the implications of our decisions. And the second's going to be about individual patients and some examples of bad decisions that I've made in, in, in triage. Um, so in terms of the system, um, this is um, kind of how many beds there are in different countries uh, you know, per capita. And then you can see sort of where we are here in terms of the number of ICU beds. So we have way more ICU beds, kind of like our own institution. We have a ton of ICU beds and not that many floor beds, and that creates a lot of downstream effects. Um, 
So uh, in the United States, about 12% of beds are in the ICU at the University of Maryland. From, from what I got from Dr. Lantry, it's about 21% in the ICU. If you include the IMC, it's about like almost 40% are uh, in some sort of critical care setting. So um, a really disproportionate amount of critical care. Um, anybody identify this film? Yeah. What's, what's, the, what's the phrase in this film or the quote? What's that? It's heaven, no, it's Iowa. <laughs> so I hadn't thought of that. But yeah. uh, so the thing that they also say is, right, is if you build it, they will come. And so, Jer- <laughs> so, so Jeremy Kahn is uh, an intensivist at Pittsburgh who's done a lot of this kind of work. And he talks about this concept of demand elasticity, which is you'll basically, you, as Dr. Shandell says, you'll fill the beds. So he loves to talk about how... Um, you know, Mickey was smaller, and it was always full. And then we got a larger Mickey, and now it's always full. And the whole, all the ICU beds are always full in the institution. And so, um, you know, what happens is, nationally, is that we were constantly expanding our number of ICU beds, and we're always filling with patients. And so we've actually, from 2000 to 2010, we decreased the number of hospital beds in America by 10%, but we increased the number of ICU beds by 7%. Um, and so what we're doing, basically, is this. We're just, like, admitting all our patients to the ICU in comparison to a lot of other places. So this is, like... 10 times as many ICU admissions as in the UK and six times as many as in Canada. Um, so you know, that's where all of our patients are going. And the question is, so maybe, you know, what's the, what are the differences in the populations? Like, are we getting all these sick patients here? And that's why we're always in the ICU. And, you know, the data that I've found, at least, doesn't suggest that's the case. You know, a lot less patients in the U.S. are, you know, uh, on a vent in the first 24 hours compared to the UK. And PACU2 scores are lower. And you know, there's a lot of evidence saying that we have just probably a lower threshold and, and you know, the number of studies showing that when you have available beds, then people admit a lot of patients to ICU and you, when you get called to see a patient and there are no beds, like that other slide, then all of a sudden these patients are stable for the floor. And you certainly see this when you work in other places, like when I'm in the ED, you see that as well too. And suddenly a patient's like floor stable and there's no, you know, XYZ unit available. So um, that's really, you know, uh, that's something suggests that we're not really, um, we're using beds, but we're not necessarily having all sick patients necessarily in all, all places. So when you look at ICU beds per capita and then spending, you know, we're way up here. So, you know, we're spending twice as much as everybody else you know, on, on, those, on those beds. And this isn't causative necessarily, but, you know, perhaps part of the reason is the way that we're using the beds. If we're always filling them, we have so many of them, then we're going to spend more because the, our utilization is so high. So about two-thirds of the time nationally, we're, our ICU beds are full. It's higher in academic centers like here. And it's a little lower in community hospitals. Um, but, you know, we spend much more than everybody else. So, you know, 30% of our hospital costs are in the ICU, which is kind of crazy to think about all the things that happen in a hospital, so much of being in the ICU. 11% of what we spend nationally is in the ICU. And then 1% of our GDP, or our actual GDP, is just on ICU care. Um, so then, you know, this is 100 times more than in the United Kingdom. This is an example. Um, so when you think about health outcomes and value and costs and all these things, um, you know, one of the things you might look at would be something like your know, projected life expectancy. So this is, um, you know, what's anticipated for somebody born in 2030. And so x-axis is um, you know, life expectancy, y-axis is different countries. And so this is where we are. So we're not quite South Korea. Um, we're expected to be. So, I mean, obviously this is not the only determinant of health. And, you know, this isn't necessarily the same thing as I see level of care. Um, but it's, you know, it's one measure suggesting that, you know, we're not necessarily providing such substantially better care that we could justify with cost. Um, so, you know, that's sort of like the landscape of what we're dealing with in, in making these decisions. And, you know, it isn't necessarily the individual patient, but it's sort of the broader perspective when you're thinking about triaging appropriately. Um, so, again, going back to the state of affairs, right, when you have all these patients in one potentially no bed, how do you choose which patient you're going to select? Um, well, there are guidelines. It's from the SECM. So, um, you know, admission, tri- discharge, and triage. Um, so this is one of the pages, and if you look on the right column, a lot of the things are just like ungraded, and it's not to criticize SECM for this. It's just that there is not a lot of there aren't a lot of data that really tell us which patients should for sure come and which patients would be fine on the floor in other units, and obviously very institution specific. So despite having these guidelines, you know we don't really we have some guidelines not based on a lot of evidence, and then we don't really like, use that those guidelines. Um, when you look at um, you know our projections for patients, so you go to see a patient. This is an example of. Uh, you sort of estimate how long the patient will be in the ICU or what's their mortality, those kind of things. Um, so the attendings are on the top graph, and then there's fellows and their interns at the bottom. This is sort of agreement with what actually happens. So you can see that 
you know, for a, for a short length of stay, perhaps it, and attendings are, are fairly accurate in predicting how long a patient will be in the unit. But once you go beyond like four days, kind of like the projections are pretty poor. If you're not an attending, the projections are not great, period. If you're, inten- if you're an intern, it's just, you can't really just guessing, basically. And also, we, we also, in multiple studies, like in this one, underestimate the mortality of patients. So, you know, we're, we don't really follow guidelines we have, but then we make individual decisions, we counsel families based on this, but then we don't really, you know, we're not necessarily that accurate. Um, sometimes we look at older patients and we say, oh, this patient's unlikely to benefit because they're, you know, 80 years old or 90 years old, those kind of things. Um, but this might suggest otherwise, you know, at least in the short, the short term. So if you look at each group, this is... Um, this is just showing you for a patient who's evaluated for the ICU, uh, you know, the, the gray side are patients that are refused admission to the ICU and the black bars are patients that are accepted. So for any given age group, as you can see here for the 18 to 44 group, there's not a lot of difference between patients that are declined ICU admission. And you, know, you might argue that's because they have a higher physiologic reserve so they can survive longer nothing in the ICU. Whereas for a mobile patient, like there's actually potentially huge mortality benefits. Some may argue that an older patient has more benefit. You're trying to pick up group of patients that are actually going to benefit from ICU care, meaning lower their mortality. Um, now, that in mind, we all know if you have a 25 year old who's really ill, that you can potentially save, like, you know, if you think of quality adjusted life years, which is a different measure, then yeah, that 25 year old has a huge benefit compared to like a 90 year old. But, um, but there's, this is counter to what I would have thought is, you know, that you're not thinking of prioritizing the 90 year old, but, you know, there's some evidence that even though we don't always take those patients, and in this study, we actually admitted far less of those patients. Um, they may actually benefit more. At the VA, this is a study of uh, 300,000 admissions of uh, 118 hospitals around the country. And so of uh, their ICU admissions, uh, more than half of those patients had a really low predicted mortality. So all these patients are admitted to ICU, and they're expected to do quite well regardless of where they were admitted to. So I remember as an intern where I used to work, um, giving a patient five milligrams of a tocolol IV for a rapid AFib to 130s, and the patient was like eating a tray of food, and he had to go to the ICU because in that place, that was like an automatic ICU admission. And then he like boarded the ED for like six hours and got oral metropolol and still had to go to the unit because he got IV metropolol within 24 hours. So, you know, there's that kind of aspect. But then you've also, the same study, patients that get admitted to the floor who have very high mortalities or predicted mortalities. So, you know, this is in thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients. And so mostly it's just that we're just, again, we're not, it's a very difficult job to pick the right patients they're going to benefit, and we aren't doing such a great job of it right now. So, you know, the next question you might ask is, what can we use to help stratify patients? And, you know, are there any kind of um, triage scoring systems or criteria? And so the one that I found, or discussed with Dr. McCurdy, is uh, the Eldicus group in Europe, uh, which is a bunch of different hospitals, and they um, basically statistically derived a score where they looked at uh, the time of triage, you're asked to evaluate a patient, you score them in the system, and if their score is too high because they have too many bad variables, then they probably won't survive anyway, so they don't benefit. So, so you take those patients out, and you look at the, you look at the rest of the patients, and you say, okay, well, you're going to apply a second score to them and see if they could benefit or not. So if they're too well, they don't go to the ICU, and if they're uh, pretty sick, then they come to the ICU. So some of the variables they looked at were things you might expect, which would be, you know, um, these are all points assigned to the different things. So the older you are, you get more points, the different diagnoses, um, and, uh, you know, different... Um, uh, lab values, and then also uh, based on functional status and chronic disorders. So you get too many of these things, you're, you're too sick, so you don't benefit. And then, so if you meet that, that other criteria, then you go to the second score, which is essentially if you have any of these things, you would get admitted to the ICU. Um, so what they found in, in uh, trying to validate this is that they actually would admit 10% more patients to the ICU than they already admit. Um, but what's interesting is they would actually about 10% of those patients we would, that were admitted originally because it's a retrospective study, they would actually be uh, declined ICU admission. 16% that were declined would be admitted. So, you know, um, it would be a different, slightly different group of patients that would be admitted overall. And their goal in, in, in driving this was to have a 99.5% specificity, meaning you don't really decline patients that would potentially benefit. So, um, you know, I haven't seen this studied in other populations yet, but it's the only thing I could find that really is done at the time of triage. So some of those variables may be helpful. Um, in terms of academic IC, medical ICs around the country, uh, most of them don't have any written guidelines for how you're going to determine who should come to the unit. So it obviously varies by time of day and who's there. And like, you know, if there's a fellow overnight, it varies when there's attending in the day, those kind of things. And then when you have guidelines, people don't really, again, use the guidelines. So we're kind of just like sort of deciding on our own. So, you know, um, there are those of us who probably exclude patients that 
probably shouldn't be excluded from the ICU. And then there's certainly, you know, those that we admit and there's no chance of, of them benefiting at all. I think a lot of this can be summarized by, this is an article from, um, from uh, Lancet this, uh, this month. Um, and it talks about a couple of things that basically influence why our system is as it is. And one of them, again, is ICU bed capacities we talked about. We're expanding that and we're over, potentially overusing it. There's not enough data to say who should come to the ICU on a grand scale. And a couple of things that are maybe out of the individual's control are that um, there are a lot of there's an expansion of fee-driven procedures, and what happens is people get procedures, and those procedures beget post-procedure care in an ICU, and so a lot of patients that have been in ICU just sort of like, because there are these procedures, and hospitals are incentivized to do that, and so that's also leading to the expansion of ICUs around the country. Um, and then the thing we haven't talked about, which is that, you know, there's the public... You know, if you talk to somebody about not doing the next thing, uh, you can be met with a lot of resistance. And I have personally experienced this being downstairs or even just being as, like, as a consult and trying to explain to a family member, I don't think they're necessarily going to benefit from the ICU. And, you know, the response can be, well, they've been in the ICU before. Like, there's one to one or one to two nursing. Why would it not be better? Like, what, you know, they, there are windows in the ICU. There are all these things. Like, it's very hard, I think, in our system to suggest that you're going to do anything more than everything a lot of the time. And it's, you know, and when you're at the time of triage, it's very hard to have that conversation when you don't know the family as well compared to when you know them later on or having a discussion about, you know, not being as aggressive. So that's part of the underlying message of the system that we're in, unfortunately. Um, so I think that when you decide, when you've decided a patient needs to come to the unit, um, what we need to think about is the time that they get, the time it takes them to get to the unit you know, has a huge impact. There are a lot of studies, and there's just two of them, but um, there are a number of studies showing that basically, you know, if, you, if a patient has a delay, they do worse, as you might expect in a sick patient. So we think about, you know, door-to-needle for ischemic stroke. We think about, you know, door-to-balloon for STEMIs, and, you know, we think about door-to-antibiotics for, for sepsis. And certainly, we don't have randomized data, like, for some of those other things, but um, there are plenty of studies showing, like, if you have a four-hour delay and a patient admitted from the floor to an ICU, there's a 40% mortality compared to if you just admit them directly is like a 10% mortality. So huge difference. Or ED patients that bore more than six hours have a much higher mortality. Or patients in the PACU that are longer. All these things that we already see in, on a regular basis is, is, has been shown. And so I think that, you know, as a person doing triage, um, you have to kind of move mountains to get the patient, you know, to the right place. And then you identify that they for sure need to be there. So um, that's an individual priority I think you have to have. And I think we need to have a system in place to do that, to, to push that through, because there's so many layers between handoffs and everything that's happening, cleaning beds and things. Um, so um, going to, from sort of the big systems to some of the individual patients. Um, so I'm going to talk about four cases. Some of you are familiar with a number of these. Um, this is a patient in the emergency department that went to go see. He's a 31-year-old. He came in with a cough and shortness of breath. He had been in the ED a couple of days prior. Um, had some URI symptoms and had, you know, normal vitals, got discharged, and then he came back with sort of the same symptoms and was tachycardic and tachypnic and hypoxic. Um, so he had a CT showing uh, infiltrates, and um, so he was intubated, and I was called to adopt the patient at this point, and I came downstairs, and he was on 100% and PP5, and he was sat about 90%. Um, and there were no ICU beds available this time, and there was another intubated patient in ED, and uh, and sort of like the, the call was more for like to get a bed and so you're trying to negotiate as fellow this position where you're trying to suggest to someone that certain things perhaps should be done uh, you know uh, optimally and you can adjust the PEEP and the discussion was sort of the PEEP led to hypotension and um, talked about you know, certain pressors and a variety of things and, and an ABG and whatnot and and um, I think you're, you can be in an awkward position where there's an imbalance of like your level of seniority and make recommendations to somebody else in some ways um, but I didn't definitely didn't do a good job of probably conveying how important some of these things were. And we talked about getting an EBG or why that would change management, potentially in the ICU, you know, proing the patient or ECMO or things like other more advanced modalities beyond their current settings. Um, so, um, so I think that communication was a failure on my part in this case. And the patient came upstairs. It was pretty unstable. It was rapidly, you know, put on vasopressors. Uh, ended up being bags. It was sounding like 70%. Got emergently cannulated. Um, ended up going RSV or SSA. Uh, but ultimately, you know, um, lucky for us, he ended up doing well. He got decannulated and getting discharged and did pretty well. I think that when we see patients in the ED, though, uh, we have to think about this context. This is actually where Cameron used to work and will work in July. And I used to work in emergency departments like this. So this is like, these are patients that are double stacked by here and here. And like, 
So when you're in the ED, like you've got all of this, and you know you don't know if this, this is like a cold foot over here, is a triple A. You just don't know what's going on, and so you see all these patients, and so you're really overloaded, and so you know like you're trying to just like move the patient through once you've done some things to stabilize them. So yeah, I think you have to understand the context well to make good recommendations to the, to people downstairs. So really, it's focused on big ticket items um, and things that are time sensitive and actually change management. You know, like don't ask for urine lights or extra scans that don't need to be done urgently because, you know, like those aren't going to happen. And I know like when I'm downstairs, like I can't think, I have way too much um, going on. I don't have the bandwidth to, to think about those extra tasks. And so, you know, so I think focusing on the one or two things that are relevant for this patient are actually like things we really need to talk about. So, you know, sometimes there are patients in this mix, again, same hospital. This is the New York Times, actually. Um, uh, where you know you just need to get this patient out of there sometimes. Like you need to create a bed because they need more resources than are available for that patient at that time. I think that's the reality a lot of the time. So we need to sort of like we talked about before, don't let patients board downstairs. Um, in the uh, another case in the, uh, the IMC of a 60 year old female with uh, renal failure and PTLD and was admitted with with ultimate status and AKI. Um, so she had flu A and strep pneumonia and she was on high flow. Um, and then she sort of settings sort of up titrated and I was called to see her for the ICU at this point. This is a recent chest x-ray. Um, and so, um, you know, she had this question of ultramental status since admission. So she's like, sort of like eyes closed, open them to talk to you, isn't fully oriented, but it's been like this for like a week. Uh, sort of seemed the same as she was before. She was setting maybe 85%, but you can't really get a real pulse ox. It's kind of like you're checking it on the ears and the forehead and everything, and you don't get a real pulse ox. It's the best you can get, which is tachycardic. Uh, and, uh, hypotensive, maps like 66, and you're sort of standing there and you're just thinking like, you know, we all think this patient belongs in an ICU, but like, what is your next step? You know, are you going to just ship this patient? Do you do some stuff for this patient right there? If you're going to do something, what are you going to do? Where are you going to get supplies? Who's going to help you? You know, and there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of institutional pressures too. And like, like the, so like there's like the provider there who's not comfortable with this patient. There's the nurse who wants the patient out of there as well too. And then, you know, if you just land this patient in your ICU and they're basically got to code, you know, that also looks very poor to suboptimal for the patient as well, too. And everybody else on the other side is like, why are you shipping this patient? He's like, you know, why didn't you do anything for this patient? So it's very difficult to navigate that. And I think that a lot of times we're in this situation where we're like, you know, do you stay in play or do you scoop and run? And, you know, this is a, obviously, I'm sure many of you know, like a echo cannulation in the Louvre. And so it's really difficult to, you know, make a call there. You know, you're not sure of this patient's airway, you're not sure about their hemodynamics and whatnot. Um, and I think that there's probably the, I think you need institutional support from the team that can provide extra hands to do things. So, you know, a rapid response is called and they're terrific, um, but they can't do a lot of these procedures that you might need, per se. So, um, you know, she ended up um, being put on antibiotics and pressers perfectly and, like, you know, she got an A-line and ultimately, you know, ended up getting, like, intubated in, in the IMC after trying to stabilize her. But it, it, it sounds very straightforward, but as you can imagine, being in that situation, it's it's logistically very challenging. The only person there there's no ultrasound and there's like not, no one knows that set up an A-line and there's a bunch of th these kinds of things that, that come up. Um, so she ended up um, coming to the unit. She was um, pretty leukopenic and uh, severely neutropenic. She had pseudomonas bacteremia. Within a few hours, she actually expired. Um, so, you know, how to do that better is pretty tough. I think we're, a lot of times we just need to have a system in place to, to back us up, I think. And have an understanding on both sides of the patient's going to arrive unstable and whatnot. Um, this is, um, uh, I have no explanation. Um, um, so uh, I also saw a patient on the floor, oh, it was all the same month, 67 year old gentleman, he's cirrhotic, he's been in the hospital for like a month, he had hepatic encephalopathy on and off, um, and he was like maybe in hospice at one point, um, but then he like went out of hospice, and there's a question of if he had capacity to make decisions about being in hospice or not, you know, family. Um, and so you're called because he then like has an episode of coffee guard emesis. And so you go to the bedside, uh, he's got a bucket, it looks like that, it's a little bit, but he looks like this, and he's a little more yellow, but he like literally gave me a thumbs up, and he smiled at me, and he said, he said, hey doc, I'm like, like what's, you know, what's going on basically? And so, you know, he has, here's his vital signs, and you're in this position, you're like, well, so what do you do, right? Again, you, this is the same month, right? So you have you have, again, maybe this one bed, you have 60 patients on your list, and like, where does this patient go? Is he, is, does he go to the unit, or does he stay on the floor? Does he, he try to get a non-existent IMC bed? Like, what's the plan here, exactly? Um, and, you know, it kind of reminds me of that, that movie, which sort of, 
this guy's kind of been in the situation many times, but one false step and this patient's going to fall off a cliff, right? He vomited once, he's stable, he, like, he's fully interactive. Um, you know, and again, there are a lot of external pressures from you know, those who are taking care of the patient, not being comfortable maybe, and those who would be getting the patient, saying the patient doesn't really deserve that level of care. You know, so uh, after a bit of back and forth, the patient went to the unit, um, and there was uh, all there was there were very strong opinions about the patient being very very well and not being unstable and it being inappropriate and a bunch of those kind of things. And so I think that one of the lessons to be learned, I think, is that culturally as an institution, we need to you know try to trust one another and try to do the best for the patient. And understand that we're going to over triage sometimes, under triage sometimes, and you know you, you just have to you know. Not make not make a situation where we're always going to be like escalating things and creating conflict when there's not conflict to be had necessarily. So this patient got respiratory antibiotics. He got a para. A couple hours later, he got worse. He got intubated. He got banded. You can see where this is going. He got septic shock. Um, grow ESBL E. coli. Went on CDH. Uh, went on ERDS. Then he ultimately expired. Uh, and this is all within like 48 hours uh, of him looking so well. He grew out ESPL E. coli, which is another learning point for me, which is that when you have these like routine, seemingly routine GI bleed admissions, like you have to think about how these patients can differ from your routine admission. And so, you know, he got tracks on it and it wasn't covering him. Um, and, you know, um, so considering that as well is a big point. Because you're when you're triaging, you're kind of handing off this story to somebody and you not, may not be privy to the whole chart. You haven't had a chance to look at everything. But I think, you know, probably bringing up some of the salient points like their coverage would be something to you know, to relate to the, the, the next person, you know, because they're expecting you may, the story you've told them may have, you know, reviewed some of the data that you have not yet reviewed. So um, I think, you know, that's another big point. And then the last case I have is a 25-year-old who um, got this call. He was in the Caribbean recently. He was having, like, a febrile illness. He was short of breath. Um, and he went to the hospital. They found a PE and a positive proponent. And they, oh, while we're on the phone, actually, they got a call from the um, echo lab that the patient had by heart strain. Um, and he was tachycardic, uh, had a sort of a borderline pressure, and he was 94%, uh, it's not showing up here, 94% on six liters of cannula. He's pretty diaphoretic. And they said, oh, by the way, we started heparin on him, and then he started hemoptysizing. Um, so, you know, they want higher level of care. And so the first thought I had in my mind is, you know, like, who do you got to call? Because, you know, this is something I know how to manage all on my own. So uh, we spoke with um, cardiac surgery just to have them sort of in the background in case the patient compensated and needed ECMO. We spoke to vascular in case they ended up needing a catheter-directed, you know, therapy. We spoke to IR because maybe he needed like a bronchial artery embolization given his like, hemoptysis. And we spoke to IP because maybe he needed a bronchial blocker. You don't know what this guy looks like. He looks sounded like he looked pretty bad. And then he got there and a um, bit of MAC to PC issues here so you can't really see the um, video, but... Uh, but he didn't have any right heart strain. There was no septal bowing. He had uh, EF of like 10% and he had LV thrombus. Uh, and so our reaction was kind of like, what? You know, like, this is not the story we got at all. It was the complete opposite. Um, turns out he ended up actually having myocarditis. So he just got like diuresed and eventually looked back on anticoagulation and uh, he's been involved and did fine. And so I think part of it is, you know, when you're getting these transfers, is shouldn't always be that surprised. Um, not that other hospitals can't do their job, but, you know, you have to do your own due diligence um, and think about, you know, the resources you have here that you don't have there. You know, keep a broad differential. Definitely look at the images yourself. I've seen several cases where the you know, images differ from the report. Um, and sometimes you just have to get the patient here because, you know, if you know the patient's sick, you know, sometimes they just need, you know, more expertise sometimes. So um, those are some of the pitfalls I think you can run into when you're trying to. Sometimes I think can give another hospital like a hard time on the phone and kind of, you know, like ask them to do this or that, or like, you know, when they don't have the information or know about certain things, we kind of like push them. And I think sometimes that's, someone's just asking you for help and they really don't know, you know, what the next step is. So I think that um, kind of uh, just keeping that in mind is an important thing. So in terms of the cases, um, you know, for ED patients, I think just focusing on the big ticket items only and being specific about that. Uh, for IMC or other level of care patients, um, having a system in place so you can decide if you're going to be there or go somewhere else and, you know, having backup for procedures and other things. Um, for the floor, you think you think about, you know, what they're capable of and even the lowest patient, you know, the high risk situation can be something can decompensate pretty quickly and then and outside hospital having a clean slate, um, you know, trusting but verifying is what Dr. Hazard always says in terms of information he's given. So thinking about that. Um, 
This is the last slide I'm going to present in Fellowship. And so, uh, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, it's on a bunch of lists for good shows. And as a note to Dr. McCurdy, I included number four all the way down. Um, we talked about it on interview day and didn't disappoint. So, um, so that's all I have. Keegan, uh, one of thank you. Number one, uh, number two is I think one other point is um, that's important to keep in mind is the need for standardization and then constant evaluation and sort of a QA process to determine whether those standards need to be um, modified in order to um, you know improve the outcome and the the value um, essentially of of the decisions that are made. And I think very transparent, you know, open communication uh, among all relevant parties is is important. And so a lot, so much is basically system based to a large extent. But I 100% agree that there's, you know, given the heterogeneity of the patient populations and the capacities of the sending and receiving hospitals, and the priorities of the patients and providers, and um, if, you know, it really many times does come down to the individual decision making as well. But yeah, I think but I think that open communication is absolutely essential. Yeah, I think the QA process is really important. I've grown very confused in reading a lot of this work because I don't know where I fall on this or I don't have data really saying how accurate I am and you know, a lot of institutions don't. So you just don't know. You're kind of just you adapt your own norm and you sort of follow those around you, but you really don't know if you're making good decisions or not. And I think that's really difficult to calibrate. So I think having some kind of standardization, I, I agree. Having, I think having you know some kind of guidelines from your unit, and that's been circulated before in the medical ICU, but it wasn't ever formalized in some past year. Um, provides you know, I think some, so just some 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 pathway to follow, and especially when you're also more junior making some of these decisions, you know, having that kind of support is really important too. So I think that would be that's something that um, obviously has to be very unit and institution specific, but I think that. that having some kind of guideline would be helpful. Hey, Keegan, that was great. A uh, bunch of comments, maybe some questions in here, because uh, this is stuff I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, num number one, uh, so I think there, there's been a push uh, based on a lot of the data that you, you presented on delayed ICU um, and increased mortality uh, that this this applies to all patients, but as your uh, anecdote about the metoprolol law um, suggests, uh, some ICU indications I, I call them iatrogenic ICU indication. Like we we create our own ICU indication. Um, so we had one over the weekend uh, that led to a heated debate that I'll be talking Dr. Jabonover's office confidentially about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the complaint's on me, so I, I suppose I can put it publicly. But uh, the patient was put on an IV nicardipine drip for a blood pressure of 240. Um, and uh, he turns out in, at home his blood pressure is 250. Right? And so there's just we just make up some of these indications, and then we, we sometimes use them um, to to push along ICU admission when when perhaps it's not the appropriate thing and uh, as you mentioned post-operative care is a good uh, measure of this so um, craniectomy is, is a classic one uh, there's a recent study from Mich University of Michigan that showed that uh, about one percent of post-craniectomy patients actually have uh, an some requirement for an ICU level care right um, and yet when we uh, as an institution, we're putting lists together of what type of patients are you comfortable taking in your ICU. Um, every other ICU other than the neuro ICU pretty much said we don't want a post-craniectomy patient when actually it's almost like a floor patient. There's almost nothing to do. Um, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but uh, so this is right. This is one of the tensions when we talk about ICU triage. Is there's a lot of patients in the ICU who actually don't need to be in the ICU, and at the same time, there's really sick patients who can't get in. Um, and I don't have any answers for that, but I think we we often uh, need to take a step back and think about um, why some of our patients who are in the unit need to be there or don't need to be there. Um, similarly, it goes down the the line right to the IMC and to the floor. 
And at this institution, some of the cavalier things we used to do in New York, you can't get away with here. But we used to just find the you know the least sick patient in the ICU when we had a sicker patient to bring in from the ED. That patient goes to the AMC. The least sick patient in the AMC goes to the floor. The least sick patient on the floor went to the hallway um, or some waiting room. And um, sometimes you need some support from an institution to do that kind of thing. And it, it gets to that point around here. Um, You've seen it from both sides, from the ED perspective, where you're like, I just need to get this person out because I need to focus on these other patients. I don't know if you have thoughts about what to do with these patients who, um, you know, we, we give them an ICU indication for a push of metoprolol or a cardine drip or something like that, where, um, but they, to any provider who's used to taking care of sick patients, says this is not a sick patient who needs the ICU. That's a, tough, that's a tough question. I, I don't know if I have an answer, that uh, a definitive answer. I think that, um, yeah, sir. I, I think part of the struggle is because we're we're pretty inaccurate in terms of deciding what patients would necessarily benefit. We see this in other units too, where you know patients come in and are actually not that sick, and then they fill up the beds because you're always filling the beds because you can never have an open bed. And then yeah, the sick, the sick patient shows up, and you're like, now I can't actually do anything for that patient because we're gridlocked with lesser sick patients that aren't going to benefit. I, so part of it, I think, has to come down to being more specific about who comes in and how to do that without much data is very, very difficult. And I think, that I think as I, don't, I think, you know, Dr. Curry mentioned this sort of earlier, is that, um, and you alluded to this, Dr. Morris, is that the institution sort of on that level has to have, um, you know, some sort of guidance as to what to do in those kind of circumstances because, I mean, otherwise, you're kind of left as a sole provider fighting this upward battle, you know, against like one or several people who are saying, no, I won't take this patient, they have to go to you, you know, and I do feel like we see that sometimes where it's sort of like, well, reflexively, this has happened, as you said, with my card thing or something, and they have to go there, and, you know, and now you're kind of stuck, and I think, um, I think a lot of has to be flushed out, probably institutionally. Can you hear me now? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. I thought it was a really great presentation. Um, I wanted to ask you about your second case because sort of in your lead up to that, you were talking about certain patient populations that may not benefit from the ICU. And as you were introducing that case, I thought, oh, this is going to be Kagan's example of someone that we should reject because they won't benefit. And in the retrospective scope, of course, it yeah. always looks that way. Um, I think you would probably need a lot more details of the case to make that determination. And then you would, in the position of being the ICU triage fellow or whatever role that might be in whatever institution you're in, um, you'd have to have the time to also invest in pushing the team to have that goals of care conversation or doing that yourself. But I was wondering, you know, would that patient fit that description of someone, I potentially fit that description of someone you shouldn't have brought in to begin with, and how do we fix this issue of primary teams not really recognizing that they need a goals of care conversation? You know, that, that seems to me to be something that can be improved in a very low-tech way um, without a lot of resources. If education about this patient population and their likely outcomes, regardless of moving to ICU or not, could be improved. Yeah, so I think there's two parts to that, probably. The, the first part, so what? In, in this actual case, I actually spoke with, I tried to speak with the patient, but it was kind of limited. And I spoke with the, um, I think it was her daughter who was at the bedside. And I kind of like outlined this, here's where we're going. And this is like, if, she, if we do this, 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 and this, this is what's like going to happen. And she was like, absolutely everything sort of situation that was her response. It was like, do everything possible, no matter what kind of thing. And so that kind of already sort of put us in that position um, for next steps. Um, but I, don't, I have not personally had a lot of success in talking with, maybe just me, but talking with patients or families in that acute situation and, and saying, hey, you know, we can not do these things before you get to the unit. I feel like it's so much easier when you're in the unit because you feel like you have more time. You have all the support, like 10 nurses walk in the room and you have like another fellow and attending walks up by and, and a bunch of residents and, and they all like help to settle things and then you also you can have this goals and care conversation. I find that so much easier. When a patient's on the floor in the ED or somewhere else, I feel like it's just, 
so difficult because um, I guess probably you don't know them as well, and they're stressed out in a situation. Whereas a lot of families, I feel like, react where they're in the ICU and suddenly they, they've landed in their destination, and now you're saying, okay, we actually shouldn't necessarily do these things. That's been my personal experience. I just haven't had a lot of success trying to necessarily de-escalate a uh, resuscitation that I think is not likely to go very well um, in the immediate acute phase elsewhere. So this is a patient who have a pulse ox on and try to negotiate that and talk to the daughter and she's like, well, you don't even know, like, well, what is your oxygen level? And I'm like, well, it's probably really low. And she's like, well, you don't even, and you can just imagine where this goes. Um, so how to do that really well, I, part of that is, I think, limited by the, um, one of the things I mentioned, which is um, the expectation of, of sort of like um, culturally within our society, sort of like this, you know, um, maximal care kind of or maximal aggressive care a lot of times and not not with not holding care a lot of people have that perspective and that can you know um, set you back in terms of other teams talking to patients i mean that's probably always true we see this a lot in, in certain groups like in certain groups of patients that may come into the icu on the 11th round of certain kind of treatment and we all kind of, <laughs> you know hope this is recorded still um, um <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that these things come up a lot, and I don't have a solution for that. You really need more PC. So, no, um, so two things to tap onto that is um, number one, we had a very nice uh, lecture last year, and I'm losing track of time by Michael DeVito. He basically was the, is the main driver nationally and internationally for the development of rapid response systems. And his talk uh, at the time here was, we need to put it up on the website, is um, uh, the importance of utilizing a rapid response activation to mobilize people here discussions. Okay, because um, and, and he has good data that support um, using that opportunity um, to uh, kind of shift the goals of care of a patient. So, but I, I agree there are a lot of impediments to that. Um, to touch on a couple of them that you brought up in your answers, number one is the insufficient data that we usually have. And I anticipate that to improve, hopefully, some, you know, in the clinic. Um, it's a very Cleveland clinic where everything monitor everything. But as we refine our rapid response kind of early warning system, early warning scores, um, as they get more and more refined and accurate, um, I think we can speak more and automated so you can have deep learning built in to really kind of nail down and factor in all these variables that are affecting patients' outcomes in real time to provide that kind of guidance. I think um, we're gonna be we're gonna be able to render much more accurate assessments and prognostication um, for those patients. Um, number two, uh, I mentioned the intro to how reasonable Canadians are, and but it's true. Uh, in the United States, you know, we want everything for everyone, and I deserve it. It's my right to get um, everything. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> everyone will me. But um, in my mind, all I hear when that somebody wants everything is uh, that I think that includes good care. But that's in everything as well. No, but I mean, this is, uh, I mean, it, it's silly, right? I mean, we cannot be everything that everyone And um, at least the society, as you mentioned in your talk, really need to come to terms with that, that we're. You know, find, we have a finite existence on this planet, and um, and we, we need to accept it, all right. And then, um, and then, um, but in many countries are much more advanced um, in in that determination and sort of, um, and also I think a big impediment to us progressing as a society in this country is um, just the uh, uh, you know. Um, the sort of the capitalist sort of idea, you know, I want everything um, and not really thinking as much about societal effects 
right? And and many smaller countries who want you know what's best for society. Let's face teacher board educate more. Yeah, you know, like but here it's you know what's <laughs> you know, are you gonna stop talking? <laughs> I'm gonna stop. Is there a question here? I'm gonna keep you everything. <laughs> so Keegan, nice job. Um, I feel like I every time I talk about this with you, I, I lived through these cases since we were on together for for a majority of them. Um, I, I think that when I think about that second case, I think one angle you can take is is Sarah's angle, which is you know should that patient have come to the ICU. The other angle you could take is should that patient have come to the ICU earlier um, when when they're High flow nasal cannula goes from thirty and forty percent to forty and eighty percent. You could almost argue that the 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 you're past the point where this person's going to turn around. Um, and why wasn't it recognized earlier that this requirement had doubled, and that the patient wasn't doing as well as they should have been doing? Right. I think that for that particular patient, she and and the third patient, um, they looked better, even though their settings were not. Good, right? So, so the guy that's giving you the thumbs up, hemodynamically and, and kind of what was going on with him didn't look good, but he looked fine. And, and the same thing with the second patient who was talking, um, and saying she was doing fine on 80% FiO2. In the past, without high flow, those patients would have moved to the ICU much faster, um, because you wouldn't have been able to institute some of the oxygen therapy that we give now on the floor. Um, so I think that this hospital got rid of a service that I thought was an important service, which was the, the critical care consultation service, to be able to go and recognize some of this stuff on the floor. And just by being a presence, um, even if you weren't particularly seeing that patient in the IMC and you were there to see another patient, somebody would say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And, and just by being around in the hospital, you, you were a presence that could help move patients or at least mobilize therapy. Um, at the site where they needed to be mobilized. I think that um, oftentimes we look at metrics that are short-sighted um, instead of thinking about the long the long game. And, um, and I think that all of us should think about that because if our loved one is in a situation like this, we don't want them to be on 11 East or 10 East or on a, on a medicine floor where they're quickly escalating the level of care. We want them to be in a higher level of care where the proper attention can be paid. And and I think we need to really think about each of these patients individually as if they're our own family member and what we what we would want done for them. Um, and if we don't do that, and, it, and, and yeah, and it might be that it's palliative care, it might be that it's aggressive care, depending on the situation. But I think that when we don't do that, we risk making decisions that are harmful to a large group as a whole. One last question for you. Uh, there was a recent editorial blog on Kevin MD uh, that I think we, it's way in my Twitter team. I had a bunch of uh, friends in Texas retweeted it. Um, and it was, I think, written by a neurosurgeon. And it, uh, so the, the phrase that is killing our healthcare system is, I am not comfortable with this patient. Uh, because all someone has to do is say those words and everything starts moving um, and often uh, it, it overwhelms the, the system. And uh, yeah, just interested to get your thoughts on that because uh, we, we put a lot of stock in those words, right? Around yeah. where if someone else is telling you I'm not comfortable with this patient, you usually try to move mountains to, to get rid of their discomfort. Um, but this uh, neurosurgeon was arguing that um, people need to get comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And what are your thoughts? Yeah. I, I certainly see this in triage. Part of the reason you're called is from saying they're not comfortable on the floor or wherever else for the patient. Uh, and then I see this a lot on the side of the EU. So working here and in other hospitals in the community where um, you know, you're the one seeing the patient, you think they're actually fine. And someone who would take a patient to a low level of care says, oh, there's not my comfortable or they say like the nurse is not comfortable or whoever, you know, and, and then immediately that like, you're kind of stuck. So like if you're imagining you're in the ED and you're this patient now, you're like, well, they've got to go somewhere. They need to be admitted. And now that this person says they're uncomfortable, you have, you're kind of, you're kind of forced to call the next higher level and say, can you evaluate? And hopefully you're going to say that they're fine. And then they're like, a lot of times the response again is like, well, if they're not comfortable, I guess they have to be all right. Like they're by default. And that just like kid keeps going up. But I've had cases that got up like several levels just based on like nobody's not the patient, but it's just like, well, maybe they're on a curfew or 
something like that, and then it just escalates like three levels. Um, so on, when you have that individual patient, it's very frustrating because that's like always turn around. It's kind of like when people say, I mean, yeah, this is recorded, but like people say, like you know, like what well, is like a patient safety concern? There are real patient safety concerns, but I feel like a lot of times people like people throw that out there, and you're like, wait, what? Like we can't like put in this midline for the, instead of a centralized patient because it's a patient safety concern because there's, there's a lot of things that happen like that, and you're like, and you're just like immediately stuck. Yeah. So there are these trigger words that exist in medicine. And um, the way I handle it, and when I send a patient out to the medical floor and a resident tells me, well, I'm uncomfortable with this patient, I provide them some reading. I go, maybe we should read up a little bit so you uh, improve your knowledge so that you are comfortable. Um, because I am comfortable sending this patient out, and that's really what matters here. Here In that circumstance, that's an internal where you know the system. But... Um, I, there is a degree of enablement that occurs when we continue to, um, you know, just take to, you know, without question answering you know, these, you know, jumping when somebody says jump. And, um, but I, you know, ultimately, I think knowing the data, um, both the patient's physiologic data and the uh, clinical data that's published regarding patients in similar situations helps you um, understand what the right decisions are and then if you're able to help teach the people on the receiving end that aren't comfortable um, and then you set clear parameters um, okay well if the respiratory rate goes to this then I want to be re I want him reevaluate I will be there or we'll take him if X Y and Z happens so I think because that's what they want. They need the crutch. And so how do you provide them with that sort of security blanket that's, you know, a justified security blanket? Um, and that, that's how I've approached it, at least. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the classic case is like the eighteen hundred transfers into the CCRU in six beds every year. Uh, learning how to work with your colleagues at other hospitals uh, to continue to receive the business, but also not enable them to dump everything on you. Uh, and it's different because you don't get to go to the floor and evaluate them. But the, I think the PERT team, which has been a two-year work in process, continues that conversation because we have cardiac surgery who wants to accept anything and then other groups that don't want to accept anything at all. Um, so we've got into a way of learning how to triage appropriately. Well, if this and this happens and we need you to get an echo and call us back in the morning, that means you can wait 16 hours. So learning how to actually triage, I think based on specific, um, uh, clinical diagnoses can be really, really helpful, like common clinical diagnoses like that, because RV strain on a CT is not the same as an echo, right? So waiting on those things. And the more that you can start to pare it down, I think for individual diagnoses, um, I think about, brain masses coming in uh, to neuro, the neuro ICU. Um, so we're going to look at length of stay associated with that, and it's completely unnecessary utilization of resources, right? So if you can start doing it by clinical diagnosis, you might be able to get a little bit more traction. Other things that are, are hard, but I, I think your your triage system is, it's you know, does the patient really need to come versus do they have the capability or just are not 